Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Cornerstone. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 to 13. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And just as a reminder, we're currently in a, ser- in a sermon series entitled Living as God's Household. Living as God's Household. And as we've been going through the series, we've seen that in Scripture, one of the metaphors, one of the ways that, um, that the church is described is as the family of God, as a household of God. And in this particular section of 1 Timothy, in chapter 3, Paul is specifically writing about leaders in God's household, leaders in the church. And last week, we explored the qualifications of elders, of overseers in the church. And this week, what we'll be looking at is the office of deacon, what their qualifications are and what they are called to do. And so this morning, our sermon is entitled, Good Servants in God's House. And so if you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We stand in reverence before the infallible and inerrant word of God. From 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word remains forever. You may be seated. And would you join me one more time in prayer? Heavenly Father, at this time, as we open up your word, would you illumine these words into our hearts? Lord, that they may not just be words that we hear, um, but Lord, that they may be your inerrant and infallible words that give us life. Lord, and so may may these words be edifying to us as we reflect upon what leaders look like in your church. And so we thank you. May you be glorified this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was younger, I grew up in a church. And at this church, everyone was referred to as a deacon. Every single person. It was deacon this, deacon that. All of my friends' parents were deacons. All of their friends were called deacons. If I didn't know what to call someone and I didn't know their names, my default was calling them deacon. In my eyes, if you were the, over the age of 35 at the church, you were automatically a deacon in my brain. And so for me, I think growing up, I had a twisted view of what a deacon was supposed to be and what they're supposed to do. And perhaps this is part of your experience as well. Perhaps you've heard of the word deacon, and maybe you think that a deacon is just simply a glorified janitor in the church. Someone who cleans the church, takes care of the building, and they just get a title. Or perhaps you might go the other way, and you might elevate their role, and you might think that, oh, a deacon, they're pseudo-elders. They're elders, but we just don't call them that because they're not old enough. But I think we rob ourselves of God's great wisdom when we do this, when we have a distorted view of church leaders, particularly deacons, because when we look to scripture, we see that God himself 
has ordained this sort of two-level structure of church leadership in his household. We looked last week at the office of elder, at the office of overseer, and how there are men who have been called and tasked to shepherd and lead the church. And in today's passage, we come across the second office in church leadership. We come across the office of deacon, those who've been primarily tasked to physically serve the church, to meet the physical needs of the body. And we come across the qualifications of deacons and what these men are to be like. And some of you might be wondering at this point, why, why do we need to hear a sermon about deacons? I'm not a deacon in the church. Why do I even need to listen to this? Let the deacons in the room listen and let, let them listen and learn. But this doesn't have much relevance in my life. But I want to show you today that these are important matters for the church. These are important matters for being a part of God's household because those who hold offices of leadership in the church are incredibly vital to the life of the church. And so it's important that we have an understanding of what they are, of what they do, and who they are to be. You see, the office of deacon is a serious role. It's not to be taken lightly, and we must treat it as such. But also through this passage, through this seemingly long list of qualifications of what a deacon is to look like, we also get a great glimpse of the great truth of the gospel of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so I want us to walk through this passage together. And we, we, we look first at the character of deacons. Then we look to the family of deacons. And finally, the promise for deacons. And as we examine this passage, as we walk through these qualifications of the men who hold the office of deacon, we can see this great gospel truth. As servants of the church, deacons are called to be a living example of the tangible love of Christ to his people. As servants of the church, deacons are called to be living example of the tangible love of Christ to his people. Now, before we dive into, into our passage, I think it's important to mention some initial, some introductory things. In our passage, which immediately comes off the heels of describing the qualifications for elders, Paul begins to write about these people called deacons. We read in verse 8, deacons likewise must be. Paul makes no mention of what a deacon is. He just drops this random word here what their function is, what their role is within the church. And so I think it's safe to assume that the readers, the, the people who are reading this, the church in Ephesus, already have a general understanding of what this office is, of who deacons are, what their role in the church is. But we read this now and we read, what exactly is a deacon? We ask ourselves, what is a deacon? It's just a random word that's thrown in here. Well, in Acts 6, 2-3, if we go a couple books back in the Bible, when, when, the, when the church first started to form, we read this, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Essentially, what's happening here is that in the early church, in Acts, as, as the early church was continuing to grow, as the numbers were seemingly growing faster and faster, there were those in the church whose needs were not being met, whose physical needs, whose tangible physical needs were not being met. 
And so the apostles, the leaders of the church, rather than risk getting distracted from their ministry, from the ministry of the word and prayer that they were tasked to, essentially appointed these seven men to to take on the specific task of meeting the practical needs of the church. And although the word deacon is not used, if you read this passage, the word deacon is not ever explicitly used, but it's generally agreed that these men were the first deacons in, in scripture. They were officially recognized, chosen, and ordained for the task of serving the church. In fact, the very term deacon that Paul uses in our passage in the original Greek is actually the word for servant. And that's exactly what deacons are called to be. Deacons are called to be servants in the church. And so when Paul writes to the Ephesian church about deacons, these are the men that he and the church have in mind. The deacons are the men then who are serving and who are seeking to meet those, the practical, the physical needs of the congregation of the household of God. And so if the elders then are primarily tasked, as we saw last week, to be spiritual shepherds in the church, then on the other hand, the deacons are primarily tasked to be servants in the church. And so Paul begins now then by looking at these specific qualifications. And we we see the first couple lists that he lists off. And we see that he begins by listing off the character of deacons, what kind of men the deacons should be. We read in the rest of verse eight, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine and not greedy for much gain, for dishonest gain. And it's interesting here that instead of talking about what deacons are able to do or what skill set they can bring to the table, Paul focuses on who the deacons must be first. Paul starts by looking at character and this often goes against what we'd expect because in a world today where that measures your profile, your, your, your skills according to your education, your background, your accomplishments, we're seeing that a call to church leadership is actually countercultural. For his household, God cares more about the character of their leaders than their giftings, than about what they can do. The character is much more important than the giftings of these men. And so deacons too, just like elders, should be men who have admirable traits and characters. And again, just like the passage we looked at last week, in the qualifications of elders, we see in the qualifications of elders, we see here with deacons that they must be these things. In other words, just as we saw last week with elders. This list is not to be taken lightly, which is why we're taking a moment to pause and go through these things because this call to deacon and to be a deacon in the church of Christ is a serious calling and we all must take it seriously. And so Paul begins this list by first saying that deacons must be dignified. Deacons must be dignified. In other words, deacons must be respected and honorable. This qualification is in the same vein as we saw last week as the call for an elder to be above reproach, to to have a good reputation. Paul calls on deacons to be respectable in their conduct and their behavior. For faithful deacons are those who keep a close watch on their personal integrity. Respectability, you see, is this main theme that Paul is going to cover 
with these first qualifications and these next three negative qualifications that Paul writes to not be these things, it's, it, it follows this theme of respectability. What deacons must not be then is defined by this word dignified. And so Paul goes into these negatives now. Deacons must not be double-tongued, must not be double-tongued. They are not the kind of men, deacons, who say one thing to one person and who turn around and say a different thing to the next. Instead, they're worthy of trust because of their credibility. They're respectable because they're credible, and they're credible because they're truthful in all of the things that they say. And again, just as with elders, deacons too must not be addicted to much wine. You see, part of the respectability of the deacons, part of the dignified nature of deacons is that he must stay far away from drunkenness, for this is not fitting for a church leader. The deacon must be devoted to Christ and to his church rather than devoted to drinking. And so he must not give himself to drunkenness. And deacons too, the list continues, must not be greedy for dishonest gain. As those who've been tasked to steward the physical gifts, the physical resources of the church, deacons must be able to operate freely from the love of money. This isn't to say that all deacons, if, you, if you're a deacon of the church, you must be poor and you can't have any money, but rather they cannot be and they must not be, Paul says, controlled by their greed or their desire to be rich. You know, I've, I've heard devastating stories of deacons and church leaders who've run off with church money. And though it's heartbreaking to hear, it's unfortunately the reality of the hearts of some. And so Paul's command that deacons must not be greedy for money is important because deacons must serve God first and must serve his church first and not money. We read in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for, I, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so Paul is saying here that deacons must first serve God. And Paul continues on in verse nine with, with this long list of character qualifications. And he says, deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Here, we actually see a distinction being made between the role of elder and deacon. And so, so as to not conflate these two, the deacon and the elder, we actually see a distinction being, ma being made between the two roles. We saw last week that an elder should be able to teach, but we don't see any requirement here for deacons. Simply put, elders are called to teach, and that is part of their primary, primary, ta primary task in their role as elders, but deacons are not called to teach. But this doesn't mean that a deacon can simply just forget about doctrine. All their scripture goes out the door. But what, what, what Paul is saying is not only are deacons to have good character, good ethical integrity, good holiness, but they're also required to have a good biblical and theological understanding. When Paul says that deacons must hold the mystery of the faith, then what he means is, to, is that they must understand and believe the truths of the Christian faith, which God has revealed to us in Christ Jesus. The NIV actually translates this as 
translates the mystery of the faith as the deep truths of the faith. This is actually why here at Cornerstone, one of our requirements to become an ordained deacon of the church is to be examined on various topics, including doctrine and scripture. I remember when, when one of our deacons was going through their training, um, we, we were gathered, some of the seminarians, and we were just, just rattling off questions about scripture and doctrine because of the importance of what it means to understand scripture and doctrine. You see, the deacons' respectability and their character are incredibly important, are incredibly crucial to the deacon. But these traits are worthless if he does not know God's word and if he does not live it out. Deacons then must be those who hold faithfully to the truths, to the foundational truths of the gospel and of the Christian faith. You see, they're not just busybodies in the church called to work and called to slave away, but they are officers of the church of Christ who must be capable and informed in matters of sound Christian doctrine. And the qualifications then continue, and Paul continues this long list in verse 10 where he writes, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. You see, personal integrity and character we see is crucial, is important for deacons, for those who are called to leave and serve the church. And in order to confirm this though, in order to confirm that they have respectable character, to, to, to see that they have respectable character, Paul is saying that, yes, they're on their own personal conscience, let them identify themselves. But Paul is saying, let that not just be the end. He's saying that the men should be tested first by the congregation. It must be confirmed by those around them, by their church community, by church leadership, that they've met these qualities in order to be one, in order to be sure that there's no occasion for blame. One of the hardest things to do when you move to a new area is to find a car, a good car mechanic. But oftentimes, one of the best ways, I think, of finding a good mechanic, and this is what I did when I first moved to this area, is to see what others have to say about, it, about them. You ask around and you look for those who've already proven themselves to be capable mechanics. You might go to the mechanic and they, may, they might have you know, snacks in the, in the waiting area and they might have wonderful buildings and they might have all this new technology, but they may not be good car mechanics. On the outside, they may look like it, but if others do not think so, then they are not good and capable car mechanics. But if they're spoken highly of and they're recommended to you, they're probably good at what they do and your car will probably be in good shape. But if you find a bad mechanic, you often do more damage to your car than good. And so we want to test them. We want to test them by seeing what others have to say. We ask around, we go on Google, we look at the reviews. And in the same way, Paul is saying that the church can't just blindly select someone to be a deacon for superficial reasons, for whether that be for age, for how long they've been at the church. Instead, before being chosen, the faithfulness of the deacon and the good character of the deacon must be proven. The reputation of the deacon must be tested and the church must see the evidence of a Christ-like servant in the life of the deacon. 
You see, it'd be unwise then for untested people to be ordained to the office of deacon because of the great damage they might cause the church, the very people they're called to serve. And so Paul commands then that they must be tested and also they must prove themselves to be blameless. They must be tested first. And then Paul finished, Paul kind of continues on and he shifts gears a little from the character qualifications of deacons and now looks to the family of deacons. We read in verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And we might pause here and wonder, Paul is writing about deacons. Why all of a sudden, why is he talking about deacons' wives? This, but this doesn't mean, I think, that deacons have to be married. I don't think Paul is saying before you become a deacon, you first have to be married and your wife must be like this. There's nowhere in scripture that this allows single people to hold the office of deacon. Yes, unmarried deacons are also expected to exercise purity and to also meet these qualifications before being becoming a deacon. But here, Paul is specifically, I think, referencing deacons who are married. And so deacons who are married should be those whose wives also exhibit these traits. You see, just as deacons by their convictions and their behavior and their quality, their character traits could disqualify themselves for the office, we see here that the character of their wives is just as important a deacon then must have a wife who has a respectability that matches his own. They're a package deal. His wife's qualifications are also part of his, his qualifications for the office. You see, what's interesting here is that the qualifications of the deacon's wife actually are parallel, are essentially the same to those that we looked at earlier in verse 8 for the qualifications of the deacon. You see, the deacon's wife also must be dignified. She must also not be slanderous. She must also be sober-minded and faithful, just as the deacon is called to be these things. And so by this, the godly deacon with his godly wife will bring much strength to the deacon's ministry in the church. Maybe you've seen this. Maybe you've seen this on full display, maybe here at Cornerstone, maybe at a church that you've been to, where the wives of deacons make their ministry that much greater and that much more effective. And so not only will they both be respectable and dignified, but they'll also have the same heart for ministry to the Lord. And Paul further then expands on the family of the deacon, on, his, on the deacon's family, and writes in verse 12, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And again, just like the elders that we saw in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, just a few verses ago, deacons are to be known or to be marked by a faithfulness in their marriage. They are to be one woman men. And like elders, they're also to demonstrate proper management of their children and of their own household. And you see, I think we went into this a little bit last week, but the idea here is that the man is, before a man is able to lead the household of God, before a man is able to lead in the household of God, either as elder or deacon, 
In order for them to lead effectively and faithfully, this man must also be able to lead his own family effectively and faithfully. For if they can't manage their own household, then how will he manage the household of God? You see, unless the gospel message does its work in the privacy of the deacon's home first, the gospel message will not affect the deacon's service to the church. He will then simply become a busybody for the church. And again, I don't think this is excluding single men or divorced men from holding the office of deacon, but instead the emphasis here is on the deacon's current family situation, current family status being of high character. His family should reflect his good ethical character and his respectability. See, the gospel truths that the deacons hold to and their respectable character must be fully displayed in both their marital life and their parental life. And now at this point, you might be wondering to yourselves, what is the point of all this? We ran through all of these qualifications. We saw this great list of of character qualifications that men must be. Why do we need deacons in the church? This seems like such a high task. Why should men in the church even seek the office of deacon? Why do we even have this office altogether? It all seems so difficult and the qualifications so unreachable. Let's just forget about it. Let's just have elders and call it a day. And yet Paul reveals to us what an honorable task serving in the church is and particularly serving as a deacon in the church is. And he tells us exactly why deacons should serve. And this brings us to our third point, the promise for deacons. We read in verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul mentions here a twofold reward, a sort of double reward for a deacon who serves well, one before men and before God. You see, before men, Paul says that those who serve well as deacons will gain a good standing for themselves. This good standing then refers to the deacon's standing or his reputation within the church, within the congregation. And there's a little bit of irony here, isn't there? Because Paul has been highlighting that deacons who serve well, they, they don't serve in order, they don't serve for their personal gain. They don't serve in order to gain great status in the church. And yet Paul says here that those who serve well will receive great honor from the church. They'll have the respect of the influence with the congregation. See their respectability their strong commitment to God's word, their honorable managing of their households will ultimately provide them with an excellent standing before people. And secondly, those who serve well as deacons, Paul says, will gain a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, deacons who serve well will gain an increased assurance an increased boldness in their faith in Christ Jesus. Through their good service to Christ's church and to Christ's people, deacons will strengthen their assurance of faith in Christ because they'll have an ever-deepening confidence in drawing close to God in Christ because a faithful servant can go boldly before the Lord 
knowing that he is doing God's will. You see, I think what Paul is trying to get at here is I think we're to see what a noble and what a great task serving in God's household, being a servant of God's house really is. To serve as a deacon then is a great, great honor. And the Lord blesses these men and these deacons for their service. But friends, this is not meant as some sort of report card that we use in order to judge and grade how the deacons of Cornerstone are doing. I hope and I pray that after the service, you won't start to think through all of our deacons and grade them on how they meet these qualifications. You see, yes, we must pay attention to these qualifications and ensure that our deacons, present and future, are men of godly and respectable character. But I don't think that this is all that this passage is meant to reveal to us. Because the truth of the matter is that no matter how hard you try, no matter how anyone tries, I don't think anyone can perfectly live up to these qualifications. In fact, no deacon in the history of the church has, and no deacon in the future of the church will be able to meet these requirements fully and perfectly. And so if you see this list as simply rules to abide by or some unattainable list to try to live according to, the calling to the office of deacon is unreachable and it will leave us feeling hopeless and burdened. How can any man, how can any person fill this office if these, if these goals, if these qualifications are that great and so hard to meet? But friends, there is good news. There's good news because there is one who has gone before us and there is one who is the perfect servant. There is one who is the perfect deacon, dare I say. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we read this, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Christ Jesus himself was the perfect servant, the perfect deacon who came to serve his people. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. And he served his people. He served you wholly and perfectly by giving the whole of himself in order to save you. He not only declared his love for you by saying it, but he also did what was necessary to keep you in eternal fellowship with him, even if it required his own sacrifice. He is the one who serves you perfectly by going to the cross when you are still his enemies and giving his life as a ransom for you and for me. So that, dear friends, is the example that we have in Christ. You see, that is the example that we have. That is the example that we strive after, that we model ourselves after. It's, this is not some list that we must seek to live out because we want to have favor in the eyes of God. But you see, the reality is that we will never meet these qualifications, but the perfect deacon the perfect servant that we have in Christ Jesus met all of these qualifications perfectly for us. 
And when this truth is real to you, that is when we can see what it means to be a servant in the household of God. See, you may not be called to the office of deacon, and that is okay. Not all of us are called to this, to this great office. And I want to close with four exhortations, two for deacons in the church and those considering pursuing the office of deacon, and two for our church. The first is this, deacons, Live in pursuit of these qualifications. To be called to serve the church as a deacon is an incredibly high calling that I think oftentimes we can forget in the midst of the countless physical needs of the church, meetings upon meetings that we attend as deacons that need to be met in the church. And I, I think we often forget about how high of a calling this is to be called to the office of deacon. And so pursue after these things. Remember Christ, imitate him, and remember what you have been called to. And remember that though it is a high calling, we have a God who not only calls, but he equips those whom he calls. Second and related is this, deacons, be an example of Christ's love to his people by serving well. Be a model to the church Follow Christ's example and then be a, be a living example, a living model of the self-giving love of Christ to his people. Remember Jesus' love for you and what he did for you and let that motivate you to go and serve his people well so that you too can have greater confidence in your faith in Christ Jesus. And third, for our congregation. Cornerstone, pray for the deacons of our church. As we've seen, the character of those who hold the office, offices in the church is incredibly important in the life of the church. And so we must pray for godly leadership. Pray that God will not only equip our current deacons to meet these needs and for the ministry ahead, but also that he will stir in the hearts of other men to pursue the office with godly intent. Pray then that the deacons will serve the household of God faithfully. And lastly, Cornerstone, serve the church. Serve the church. Yes, we might not all be called to this office of deacon. We might not all be called to this official role. But even those of us who are not ordained as deacons, even those who are not called to be deacons, must and we, must, we can seek ways in which we can serve God, his people, and our neighbors as imitators of Christ. You see, for followers of Christ, who've first been served by our perfect servant, by our perfect deacon, who served us by giving his life as a ransom. Service is not an option because we serve in response to what Christ has done for us. You see, in God's household, we're called to be one great body of servants. And so, Ask yourselves, what is one need in our church that you may be uniquely equipped to meet? Where can you specifically serve the church using the gifts that the Lord has graced upon you? Imagine 
Imagine what our church, imagine what Cornerstone looked like if we all put our hands to the plow and if every member was characterized by a serving heart, not just our deacons. Imagine the great confidence that we would have in our faith and the great assurance that we would have in our faith in Christ Jesus. But in all of these things, church, remember Christ. Remember him and look to him. Remember how Christ has first served you in your greatest need by going to the cross for your sake. Remember that when we were dead in our sins, Christ redeemed us and washed us by his blood and he served us first. And may that motivate your service to God's kingdom, to God's church, to God's household, so that in that day, he will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant.'"